Welcome back and thank you for joining us for another episode of The Source. I'm your host San Raza and today I'll be talking to Dimitri Liskaris about the one year anniversary of the bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline as well as the latest developments surrounding the war in Ukraine. Dimitri Liskaris is an independent journalist and lawyer who specializes in class actions, human rights and international law. In 2020 he ran for the Green Party leadership in Canada, finishing second. Dimitri, welcome back. Thank you for having me Zane, always a pleasure. The 26th of September marked the one-year anniversary of the bombing of the Nord Stream pipeline. The majority of the German media allocated coverage on the theories surfaced by the mainstream media and rarely, if at all, addressed the piece of Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hirsch. In February this year, Seymour Hirsch claimed the US was responsible for destroying the Nord Stream pipeline. However, a month later, the prevailing theory that has resonated until today came from anonymous US intelligence sources in the New York Times, which was that a ROG Ukrainian group conducted the bombing using the Andromeda Yacht. At the same time, this prompted the German mainstream media network to investigate and report, with some divergence following more or less the same conclusion. Moving forward to June of this year, the Washington Post then reported that attacks were conducted by the knowledge and order of the Ukrainian military, and that US and European intelligence had known about the details of this plan. One year later, how do you dissect all this contradicted information about the Nord Stream pipeline? And which theory do you think holds for most plausible? Well, I begin as a lawyer by asking the uh, question, qui bono, who benefits? And it seems absolutely clear that the overwhelming beneficiary of the destruction of Nord Stream has been the United States government. Uh, first of all, the United States government for decades was uh, pressuring not years, but decades, was pressuring Germany to sever its energy relationship with Russia. Uh, because, uh, first of all, that gave uh, Russia a significant degree of influence over European governments, their reliance upon Russian uh, energy resources. But secondly, it was to the detriment of uh, American energy corporations, particularly in the petroleum sector. Uh, secondly, um, this uh, this would hurt Russia, which had become increasingly strong under the Putin government from an economic and military perspective. Uh, the loss of revenue from the sale of gas to Europe would be a significantly uh, negative development for the Russian economy. And uh, the United States government wanted to weaken a geopolitical rival. Uh, and finally, it wanted to uh, increase its level of control over European government. So uh, it clearly was the primary beneficiary. Uh, Russia certainly didn't benefit from this in any way, shape or form. And the Ukrainians didn't benefit anywhere nearly to the same degree. I mean, certainly didn't help their situation on the battlefield, the fact that Nord Stream was destroyed. Uh, and secondly, who had the capacity to do it? Clearly, the, the American government, this was a complex operation, which uh, had to be carried out in a clandestine manner to avoid detection. Clearly, the United States government and military and intelligence agencies uh, had the sophistication to pull it off. I don't think anybody denies that. And finally, you have Joe Biden saying expressly that if Russia invades, we are going to bring an end to Nord Stream. I mean, how could you possibly have a greater declaration of intent than that? Uh, so when you add it all up, uh, even before uh, the legendary Cy Hirsch came out with his article, it was clear, I think, that uh, the primary suspect was the United States. Denmark, Germany and Sweden, the three countries currently investigating the incident, have still not released any significant information a year later. On the surface, it appears that they are unwilling to get to the bottom of the matter. Moreover, there is no pressure from the Western media or the public to force the government to act. When German left-wing parliamentarian Zara Wagenknecht requested more information from the German federal government last year in October, she received the following response, quote, 
The requested information affects confidentiality interests worthy of protection to such an extent that the national interest outweighs the parliamentary right to information and the right of members of parliament to ask questions must exceptionally take a back seat to the confidentiality interests of the federal government. What is your assessment of the state of the investigation and why do you think Western gov government and media is not inclined to press ahead with it? Well, I think it's beyond the realm of imagination that if the German government or any NATO government had compelling evidence that Russia was behind the destruction of Nord Stream, that they would invoke confidentiality. I mean, they've done everything conceivable to make the Russian government look bad. What better way to add to the villainy uh, that they've projected onto the Russian government than to produce compelling evidence that it destroyed the Nord Stream pipeline, which not only uh, was, uh, you know, a, an act of economic terrorism, it was an act of uh, environmental terrorism. Uh, so clearly they don't have any evidence, I think, of that. And, and they're not even claiming it anymore that it's the Russian government. They gave that up a long time ago. So that really leaves two possibilities. The one is the Ukrainian military or the United States government. Um, I can see the German government having a, a motive not to reveal that the Ukrainian military is behind the destruction of Nord Stream because, of course, the German government has uh, sacrificed a great deal to support the military and the government of Ukraine. Uh, however, if it were the Ukrainians, how in good conscience could the government of Olaf Scholz continue to supply military equipment to Ukraine? That just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So it comes back to what we said, what I was saying earlier, and what Cy Hirsch has reported in great detail, that really it was the Biden administration behind this. The most plausible interpretation of the refusal of Western governments, and it's not just the governments you mentioned, Zane. The United States government itself stated very clearly afterwards that it was going to investigate this thoroughly. And as Cy Hirsch mentions in his most recent recent report, there is absolutely no indication that they even attempted to investigate who did this, let alone uh, that they withheld the results of their investigation from the public, because they know who did it. They have no interest in conducting an investigation. All roads lead to Rome. This was very clearly the United States government. And what is most troubling from my perspective, if I were a citizen of Germany, uh, is what Cy Hirsch has to say about what Olaf Scholz knew about it. I think that that is really the explosive part of this most recent report. Let's change gears here and look at the latest developments on the battlefield in Ukraine. We talked about Ukraine's territorial gains in the south of Saporizhia and Robotna last week. But now Ukraine has made more gains, recently capturing the village of Andrevichka to the east in Bakhmut. On September 19, Tagesschau, Germany's leading news channel, invited a military expert named Nico Lange in the primetime segment, who claimed that Russian troops have been retreating for weeks and Ukraine is slowly advancing. How significant are the gains in Bakhmut? And do you agree with this military expert's assessment? Well, it's interesting that the language you used, it really doesn't uh, provide any uh, concrete sense of the extent of the gains or the extent of the retreats. I think it's fair to say that there have been advances. It would be astonishing if after nearly four months of offensive using tens of billions of dollars of weaponry, the Ukrainians had gained at least some territory. Uh, they appear uh, to have expelled the Russians from Kleshivka, from Andreevka, uh, and also from Rabotino in the south, in the Zabotino, uh, uh, Zaporizhia direction. Uh, but these are all extremely small settlements, and they have been raised to the ground. And the fact that they've been raised to the ground uh, 
in part, in large part, not just because of Russian artillery, but because of Ukrainian artillery, uh, means that they can't be held. They are now in the gray zone. No one can control them because if you send forces in there and they remain stationary, they're going to be obliterated. They have no meaningful cover. So now what you have basically are these open spaces where Russians uh, enter at some point, Russian forces, Ukrainian forces, but nobody truly controls the area. In the uh, Bakhmut area, uh, the Russians have retreated behind a railway line. Uh, militarily, uh, you know, it is very difficult to take your forces, particularly armored forces, across a railway track. Uh, and uh, they appear to be holding that line very uh, carefully. So there's absolutely no reason to believe that the Ukrainians are on the verge of retaking Bakhmut. The Russians are fully in control of Bakhmut. It would be astonishing if the Ukrainians ever recover Bakhmut. And the overall, I think, picture on the battlefield, Zane, is particularly if you look at the south, is that the Ukrainians are running out of forces. They now have stopped attacking in large armored fists, and they're sending small groups of infantry to try to take pieces of territory and hold them small pieces of territory. The Zaporozhye, Zaporozhye direction, which everybody thought was the main theater of battle in this offensive because they wanted to sever the land bridge to Crimea, has become remarkably quiet relative to what was happening there previously. I think this uh, offensive is all but over, frankly. Uh, and there may be very marginal gains here and there, uh, but uh, the real issue is going to be, how is Ukraine going to survive this winter? Particularly if the Russians begin, uh, they resume heavy attacks upon the already battered Ukrainian energy grid. This is going to be, uh, tragically for the Ukrainian people, I fear, a, a very, very grim winter. Let's look at the larger picture in Europe. There are some recent developments in Europe that suggest support for Ukraine is waning on the continent. For example, Poland, one of Ukraine's staunchest allies, recently announced it would stop supplying arms to Ukraine a day after President Zelensky accused Warsaw of playing into Russia's hands by banning Ukrainian grain imports. Secondly, three-time former Sol Slovak Prime Minister Robert Fico has a chance to return to power in a few days as he is ahead in the election polls. FICO is opposed to escalating the conflict, fearing it could lead to a major war on the European continent. It is anticipated that Slovakia could form an alliance with Hungary, uh, whose head is Viktor Orban, and that could cause a shift in support for Ukraine. How do you assess both developments in Poland and Slovakia? Well, these are clearly adverse developments uh, for Ukraine. Uh, but we must also bear in mind that Slovakia is not exactly a heavyweight in NATO or in the European Union. I think that Slovakian, uh, a Slovakian government that aligns itself with respect to Ukraine uh, with Viktor Orban uh, would have uh, some impact upon European public opinion. Uh, it certainly wouldn't help the Ukrainian cause, but I don't think that that in and of itself is going to be uh, a devastating development for Ukraine. Uh, Poland is a much more significant matter uh, because Poland has provided, I believe the estimate that the Polish gave was somewhere in the vicinity of $20 billion of aid, which is actually twice the amount of aid that Canada has provided, and Canada has a significantly larger economy. Uh, but mostly, Poland's importance is that it is a transit point for the massive amount of weaponry, uh, most of the weaponry that's entering Ukraine, without which the Ukrainian army could not survive. And it is also a, a point at which, uh, for which the, uh, that is used in order to repair the weaponry because the Ukrainians can't safely repair this weaponry themselves. They have neither the capacity nor the facilities to do that. All of their repair facilities are subject to attack by the Russian forces. So if, if Poland begins to be truly uncooperative on the military front, that would be a devastating development for Ukraine potentially. 
What remains to be seen is how serious the polls are about this, uh, this, this commitment not to arm uh, Ukraine any further. The Polish government is heading into an election. Uh, it relies very, very heavily upon uh, farmers for its electoral support. Uh, they are extremely opposed to Ukrainian grain imports for obvious reasons. Uh, so I think that once the election's over, if this government secures a majority in particular, or at least uh, remains in power in the coalition government, it may soften its stance significantly vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. Time will tell. But overall, it's important to look at the overall trends throughout the West. Overall, there's, there's a clear, distinct diminution in the levels of public support for uh, arming and funding the Ukrainian government. So whatever happens in Poland, whatever happens in Slovakia, the trend is not favorable for Ukraine. Talking about uh, public support growing to end this war, however, when I read Western media reports, whether it's on Slovakia or Poland or even the US, um, what is usually mentioned is that uh, only right-wing sediment is against the war and it's not the reflection of the general population. Uh, that's the impression I get when I look at the German media. How would you dissect this? Is it true that it's only coming from the right wing or do you think uh, public mood in general is changing towards this war? Well, uh, I'm a leftist. Uh, I'm a self-declared socialist and have been for a long time and I'm uh, adamantly opposed to the uh, funding of this war and I know many people on the left who feel similarly to me. Uh, but I'll refer you to a poll that was done by CNN a couple of months ago in the United States, which showed that 55% of Americans were opposed to further support for Ukraine. Uh, so uh, it couldn't possibly be because 55% of Americans don't align with the right. Uh, it, it, it couldn't possibly be that that's a purely right-wing sentiment in the United States. That's simply not true. Uh, this is a tactic, by the way, that's used with, by the mainstream uh, media and the uh, mainstream political parties to discredit any point of view that they disagree with. They immediately, um, you know, uh, characterize it as extremist. This is something I myself have had to uh, confront whenever I've criticized Canadian government policy with respect to Israel. You know, it's, I'm characterized as having an extremist point of view. But if you look at the polling, there's a tremendous amount of sympathy for the Palestinian people amongst Canadians. And something similar is going on with Ukraine. Uh, the, the, the end of the day, no one should have any illusions about the fact that this has been an extraordinarily costly war. Uh, the reality is catching up with the fake narrative we've been given. Uh, it's only a matter of time before uh, people of all political stripes turn against this uh, proxy war. And the real question is, as I've said many times, uh, is the West going to continue to escalate or is it finally going to come to the conclusion that it needs to come to a compromise solution with the Russian government? That's the question and it has existential importance for all of us. To my last question, don't you think it's politically impossible even for the West, given that Biden has an election uh, next year in the United States uh, to now shift gears, uh, especially given how much political capital he has invested in supporting Ukraine? I mean, the Republicans will tear him apart by saying, look at this U-turn that you just made the last second. Um, do you see any prospects of peace? And I know we've talked about this before, but uh, since we've gained a lot of new viewers, what would a sustainable peace look like? Well, as a matter of fact, I read today for the very first time, I'll, I'll deal with the second part of your question first, um, uh, a peace plan that was proposed by four German experts. Um, one of which I understand uh, is, uh, he's a historian and he's the, I believe the son or the grandson of Willy Brandt. Uh, and they published their peace plan on August 23rd. I had not seen it before because it's not been mentioned anywhere in the mainstream media in, 
in Canada, the United States, as far as I can tell. Uh, but somebody sent it to me, and I thought it was an eminently sensible plan. And what they talk about, uh, effectively, they couch it in diplomatic terms. First of all, a ceasefire. Uh, secondly, uh, the creation of a, a demilitarized zone protected by uh, UN peacekeepers that extends 50 kilo kilometers from the border of Russia into Ukraine. And then uh, that demilitarized zone, which is protected by peacekeepers, on either side of it, there would be a further uh, sort of non-military zone on the Russian side and the Ukrainian side of that uh, that peace, uh, that, that demilitarized zone. Uh, and then you would have uh, effectively the Ukrainian government uh, ceding, although they don't use this language, uh, Russian sovereignty over Crimea, which for a number of reasons, which you and I have discussed, is, is, is an eminently sensible thing to do, it seems to me. Um, and that, that there be a, a plebiscite held in the four oblasts that were annexed after the invasion began uh, on terms agreed to by Ukraine and Russia, and uh, that it be internationally supervised, and that both Ukraine and Russia commit to respect the results of that plebiscite. And they specify, because this is an important issue, that people who left these areas uh, and who lived there at the time that the invasion began be permitted to return and be eligible to vote whether or not they return. That is exactly the right thing to do. And then they also talk about there being a, a commitment by NATO, uh, by Ukraine to remain neutral in every sense of the word, out of NATO, no foreign military forces on its soil. And finally, an international donors conference. I've been talking about essentially these same elements uh, for months, and I'm not the only person who's been doing that. Uh, and it's really disappointing to me that the, when people of that stature come forward and put together such a well thought out and humane plan, uh, that the media won't talk about it. Um, uh, you know, uh, but in terms of Biden, the first part of your question, the election, I, I, I you know, I have to say, uh, Zane, that I'm extremely skeptical for the very reason you cited, that any president, any prime minister, any chancellor who is as invested in this war as Biden and Trudeau and Schultz are, can at this stage come to the table and offer a meaningful compromise to the Russian Federation. It would be an absolute disgrace. Uh, I think that what Biden's uh, I'm hopeful uh, that Biden at least will not further escalate the conflict between now and the election. But here is the reality. The reality is that if we're going to bring an end to this heinous war, save the people of Ukraine, uh, eliminate or at least reduce dramatically the risk of a nuclear war between Russia and the West, uh, these particular people, uh, not just the ones I've mentioned, but other Western leaders will need to be removed from office and replaced by people who actually behave in a sane uh, and uh, rational manner. Dimitris Karas, independent journalist and lawyer, thank you so much for your time. Thank you again, Zane. Always a pleasure. And thank you for tuning in today. Please don't forget to donate to our channel if you're watching our videos regularly. We are a small, non-profit, independent organization that does not take any money from corporation governments, and we don't even allow advertisement to ensure that you get independent information free from external influence. We have 140,000 subscribers, and only a few percent donate to us on a regular basis. If everybody on our channel would only donate one euro, we would be able to finance ourselves for the next four to five years. I'm your host, Zan Raza. See you next time.